Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen, and we're super excited that you guys have tuned in with us today for our show. We've got some exciting stuff going on today. Phil, why don't you tell everyone what's going on in our show today? Yeah, so today we uh, we have a lot of uh, great stuff. You know, it's a, it's the second installment of the Refugee Crisis Series. And as I said last week, I am so excited for this because I'm learning right, right alongside everybody. And doing these interviews was such a treat. Today we have Scott Arbiter of uh, World Relief. He's the president of World Relief. Just an amazing man with an amazing story doing some incredible work with this great organization. And, you know, we also, um, in, a, in a few minutes, we're going to be able to hear from, from you, Karen. And uh, everyone out there is going to be able to hear from her on post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, as many of you know. it. It's something that is so, um, unfortunately, it's, it's all too common in our world today. And particularly in the context of this refugee crisis, there's so much, so much going on, so many issues. Um, and so we're going to hear a little bit about that. We're going to have a couple more recommendations. We're going to get that, uh, you know, Phil and Dr. Karen recommend back later on in the show. And uh, so, you know, I, I just can't wait, like I said, to hear back from people about what they're learning, how they're able to engage uh, in, in this um, huge crisis that our world is facing. And so folks out there, please, please engage with us on this. Uh, send us some emails, send us Facebook comments, um, just different uh, things on, on the website. Uh, you, can, you can connect with us and just ask us questions. Um, share what you're feeling about these different things. Uh, these are, this is what we're here for, is really to have a conversation with you out there and to really be able to provoke and stoke conversations amongst your, your friends and family and, and other people that you're in connection with. So uh, with that, Karen... Um, Tell us about PTSD and what we need to know. Well, I will do my best to give you a tiny little blurb about post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm sure you guys listening have heard that term or have heard that acronym. And a lot of times it's used um, very much in appropriate ways. And sometimes it could be used uh, maybe in like jovial ways or in exaggerated terms. So I think it's good, especially when we're discussing some of the things that we'll be talking about over the next few weeks in our refugee series, just to kind of get a basic understanding of what is PTSD and does everyone have it? Like if everyone experiences a traumatic event, does that mean that everyone who experiences this is gonna automatically have um, this condition, this mental health condition? And so first of all, let's just kind of give you the nuts and bolts. Uh, PTSD is a diagnosable condition. Basically, what it's looking at is it's looking at someone who experiences a a traumatic situation or learns about a family member or a close relative or a close friend experiencing a traumatic situation. And then after that event or situation occurs, an individual then kind of usually has a couple of different symptoms. Usually it looks like that individual, and that could be an adult, it can be a teenager, or it can be a child. What happens is that that individual starts to have um, maybe thoughts or even dreams or nightmares where they start reliving that traumatic event. That's an indication that PTSD possibly could be happening. Another 
kind of situation or symptom that might be happening is when an individual might start to avoid things in their daily life that might remind them of that traumatic event. And that could be people or places or activities that are associated with that certain traumatic event. Um, And then one of the more um, well-known symptoms is what we call hypervigilance or hyperarousal. And that's meaning that an individual is basically on guard all of the time. And they have a lot of feelings that maybe might be new to them, like irritability or anger or having difficulty concentrating or difficulty sleeping. And so we tend to see that third kind of category, that third cluster of being on guard or being hypervigilant as really what people um, most often recognize first, or even people around them might recognize that first, because that tends to be the symptoms or the criteria that exists that kind of um, help other people to know that this person is acting a little bit differently. And so in these symptoms or in these situations, it's often very distressing, especially with the recurring thoughts and the um, potential nightmares or dreams. I do think it's important to state for you guys to know um, that just because someone experiences a traumatic event, it does not automatically mean that he or she will develop PTSD. What we know is that typically these type of symptoms, they appear usually within a couple of days or a couple of weeks of that specific trauma, but that some people don't experience symptoms until months or even years later. So let me clarify, just because we experience a traumatic event does not mean we'll develop PTSD. But it could, it could start to appear a couple of weeks after the event or maybe a couple of months or even a couple of years later. So I think that's relevant when we're talking about the refugee crisis of knowing that so many millions of people are being displaced and what does that look like percentage-wise of how many people might be experiencing PTSD and how many people might be experiencing some symptoms but maybe not a diagnosis of PTSD. Those are all questions that mental health professionals literally all over the world are trying to do research and figure out the best ways that we can come alongside of refugees. There's a couple of issues associated with that. Um, One in particular is language barriers, um, assessment measures. We don't have a lot of assessment measures in some specific languages. And so sometimes our assessment of these disorders or conditions can be limited or it might be um, under-reporting or over-reporting. That doesn't mean that we don't keep trying. It just means there's a lot of barriers to even identifying and assessing and then ultimately treating Um, post-traumatic stress disorder and refugees. Again, it doesn't mean there's not great stuff happening right now. There's a great stuff happening, particularly with EMDR. That's um, an effective treatment for PTSD. So that's little nuts and bolts of um, PTSD. I could go on and on and on and on about it, but it's very, very relevant, obviously, to the families who are being displaced and as our guest will talk about today, of just entering into environments where their support is so limited and their safety um, and security is incredibly limited as well. Yeah, well, thanks for that, uh, Karen. There, yeah, as you said, there's so much to this. There's so there, there are many, many, many resources out there on this. And thank you for that little nugget on it that uh, we can go and hopefully learn more. If, if this is something that, uh, you, that you think might be going on in some of the ministries that you're working with and some of the, the work that you're doing with different people, definitely seek out professional professional help in it. And, and uh, thanks, thanks again for that, Karen. So... 
as you said, uh, Scott Arbiter um, of World Relief is going to be sharing about uh, the, the work that World Relief is doing all around the world. And um, and so I am, I'm not going to talk too much longer about him. I just want you to get to hear from him. And so let's get right to that interview that I was able to do with Scott. Well, Scott, it is so good to have you here today with us. Thanks, Phil. It's good to be on with you. Yeah, you know, I, I know that uh, some of the some of the listeners have heard of you. Some of the listeners may know uh, who you are, know a little bit about you uh, in your work with World Relief. But I would love for you to just, you know, share with us uh, briefly just about who you are and, and how you got to be where you are today. Well, it's, uh, it's kind of a strange story, but I'll keep it short. I actually started out uh, in music and then went into psychology only to become a business major to work for about 20 years in the marketplace, then to accept a call into the ministry and served uh, for uh, 14 years in ministry as lead pastor at a large church here in the Midwest. All that to uh, later accept a call to become the president of World Relief. Yeah, so the typical role, a typical uh, route to the uh, World Relief and the work you're doing. Well, I, uh, I tell my I tell my children, uh, we often think that God leads in a straight line. I think often uh, the line is actually quite crooked from our view, but it's always uh, meaningful, and he's oh, he always knows what he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. That's well, that's that's for sure. That's for sure. And then often uh, to the, at the expense of what what we think is best, right? Um, yeah. Well, can you just give a little uh, little overview of what you're doing with World Relief, what you, you know, in, in your role, but, but more uh, um, just what World Relief is doing around the world? Be glad to. Let me back it up just a little bit. And I promise to keep the history short. But World Relief actually started out of the last great refugee crisis, was, which was in World War II. There are a lot of American uh, Americans and Christians who were watching the old grainy black and white newsreels in the theaters. And they were seeing pictures of orphans walking through the streets of war-torn Europe and crying out for their parents and parents looking for their children. And it was a time when people felt pretty helpless about what to do because we didn't have the communication and the logistics that we have now. But there was a church in Boston that said, we don't know what to do, but we got to do something. So they started uh, a pact together. They were going to give up some of their own evening meals take the money that they saved from that, pull it together and find someone who could get it over to war-torn Europe. Well, out of that effort, um, something uh, started to really catch fire. And the National Association of Evangelicals pulled something together called the War Relief Commission, which became World Relief. And for over 70 years now, we've been working in a total of about 110 countries, mm about 26 offices around the U.S., just working hard. Um, our mission is to empower the church to serve the most vulnerable. And so we do that in a lot of hot spots around the world right now. And uh, it's a hard call, but a good call. And we're really grateful God's entrusted it to us. Yeah, and, and I believe uh, your, your website is worldrelief.org. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. So those listening out there, you can go to there and you can see all the great work that World Relief is doing. Um, I highly respect this this organization and the work you guys are doing. And, and I really encourage you folks around the world, if you are looking to get involved uh, with the things that we're talking about today, go check out the website. There will be ways you can do it. And, and Scott will share some of those ways as well today. 
Um, but one of the things, you know, that you're working on right now, um, that, uh, if, if you haven't heard of it, uh, out there, those of you listening in, you know, you probably haven't been listening, um, much to the news or, or your social media feeds in any way, but, uh, it's really the refugee crisis. And, and I, I also believe, though, unfortunately, that I think that most of the world fundamentally misunderstands the crisis and doesn't really um, know what's going on. Uh, and can, so I, I'd love for you to be able to share, give our audience a, kind of an overview of the crisis to help un- them understand the foundational issues, maybe the root causes, and um, really what we need to know to understand it. Uh, glad to, Phil, and uh, you direct us wherever you need to. But but let, let me start with the idea that refugee crises are not new. Sadly, they're a part of the human story uh, for many um, hundreds of years. It's just part of the impact of our tribalism, our racism, our warfare, uh, our inhumanity uh, to one another. But we're in a really unique space in the current refugee crisis in that the world has never seen one like this. Um, We have got right now about 65 million displaced people. Uh, That means that they've been thrust out of their homes, their communities, all the places that they thought they would stay uh, forever, just as we probably think we're secure. Most of them thought that they were. Mm. And the reality is, is that 65 million displaced um, then comes down to 23 million that are actually refugees. And the difference is, a displaced person may still be in their home country, but a refugee has been thrust out of their country and has almost no likelihood of being able to return uh, to their home country. We tend to think of it uh, being really all about the Middle East, and certainly a lot of it is right now. But historically, the United States has been receiving refugees since 1980 uh, from many countries around the world. And historically, it's been mostly from Christian nations. Um, the last decade or so, the greatest numbers have come out of uh, Burma, often now known as Myanmar, or the Democratic Republic of Congo. But the Middle East certainly has become a hot spot, and there's a great number of refugees coming uh, from there. If I can, for a second, Phil, there's one important distinction I'd like to make, because I think the word refugee can often get uh, misunderstood. Um, we have a lot of people who are coming to the U.S., who long to live here, uh, immigrants who come in legally, those who cross borders without documentation, those who might come in and overstay a visa. But the immigrant story is very different than the refugee story. Mm. No refugee can come to the United States because they want to. Mm. No one in a refugee camp can raise their hand and say, you know, I think I'll take the U.S., thank you very much. The reality is, is that the only way a refugee gains access to the U.S. is if the State Department chooses them out of the refugee population in the refugee camps overseas. And they choose them based on their vulnerability, often because they can't return home because of persecution, the threat of execution, or their homes no longer exist, and often because they're the most vulnerable because of children who have unique health needs, 70% of those who are refugees resettled in the U.S. are women and children. Mm. And there are a fair number who, in fact, have special medical needs. But again, they can't come to the U.S. unless they are specifically chosen by the State Department. 
And then they go through an 18 to 24 month vetting process to make sure they are who they say they are, that they don't pose a security threat. And if at any point in that process, they're believed to pose a security threat, they're simply placed back in the refugee camp and not admitted to the U.S. So I think there's a broad confusion that refugees can make their way across the borders. They simply have no access to the U.S. unless specifically invited by the State Department, reviewed by Homeland Security, the FBI, and uh, five other U.S. agencies, then they can finally make their way in. So it's a very different population than the broader immigrant population that they're often confused with. Right. Now, and I think, too, the, the confusion, too, comes in. You know, we've seen whether it's a, a picture of camps or whether it's – most people probably haven't even seen that. But they just kind of hear about these refugees coming to the U.S. and without any understanding of the life on the other side. And uh, can you just speak to that a little bit as well? Just, you know, th- when you say they've been displaced, that's, that's kind well, of an understatement, um, I think. Yeah, can you really speak is. to that? I can, Phil. And just one other point about, uh, you mentioned the people who might have seen the images of the refugee camps. I do think most Americans have seen a fair number of images on the news feeds of the large numbers of refugees who make it into Europe coming uh, in boats or just crossing over the land borders. And they would rightly think, wow, you know, that must be what's happening in the U.S. as well. And what a security threat that might be. That situation in Europe is unlike the U.S. situation at all. There are no uh, refugees coming across borders. They cannot come across in boats across uh, the oceans. They cannot make their way here unless they fly in through our borders through the process I mentioned before. So it is a very different situation in the U.S. than in Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is really important that we're keen on security. We live in a dangerous world. But the refugee security uh, program is much stronger than I think most people realize. The other thing, going back to your question, is that these are people who are among the most traumatized in the world. If you think about Syria, for example, you know, the, the Syrian conflict began in 2011 when part, as part of the Arab Spring, there were some government protests taking place, but the government badly overreacted and began opening fire on students. It led to a civil war. And there are over four and a half million people displaced in Syria. And if you think of Syria, uh, in many of the communities where people are displaced, they were living in comfortable homes that we would be comfortable living in, going to schools, not unlike many of our schools, living on tree-lined streets. And you're right, the word displacement is much too tame. They were ripped out, torn away from everything that they knew. Their houses in the neighborhoods have been shelled and bombed by the government. Many of the young men have been killed. And so many of the young mothers are running for their lives, taking their children in tow with nothing but the clothes on their back. They are leaving grieving lost loved ones, uh, grieving all the security, the jobs, uh, the incomes that they knew. They are running for their lives uh, unwanted, hungry, often cold, and there's no place in the world that will feel like home to them because wherever they go, they're going to be a refugee. Mm -hmm. And just to give scope for a second, when you think of the 65 million displaced people, um, I live in the Midwest, and if I think of the city of Chicago, 
if I, and I'll be driving into the city today, if I think that every home, every apartment house, every condo was completely empty throughout the entire city of Chicago, but then I have to multiply that through all the state of Illinois and Milwaukee and all of Wisconsin and Minneapolis and all of Minnesota and Detroit and all of Michigan. In fact, I can take the entire 11 Midwestern states and imagine every single home is empty because of the warfare that is taking place. Then I have a picture Mm. of the ripping away, the displacement that we talk about in simple terms, but is so utterly tragic to people who are leaving with no visible means of support, with vulnerable children, often with health needs, losing their education, their opportunities, losing any sense of safety or security. Um, it's nothing that any of us would choose for us, for our children or our grandchildren. Yeah, right. No, absolutely. And, you know, and I think that uh, you wrote a press release in, in February talking about how World Relief is both pro-refugee and pro-security. And so the answer isn't just let's just open the floodgates and let everyone in to take right. care of that. Right. But what is the response in, in your, you know, in, in the experience you've had and in the, in the expertise you've, you've been able to gather as your, you know, and that's obviously a relative term, um, <laughs> expertise, but, you know, you have, you have, you have really studied this and what would you say, what, you know, is a proper response for the church? And I think in that article itself, you said, you know, one of the roles you have is to educate the church because we don't have the time to really research it at the level that you have and that you, you've done. And so you're able to tell us, so can you share with us some ways that you really believe we here in the U.S., but also in different parts of the world, can respond to this in a way that, that is gospel-centered and, and will hopefully be kingdom-building. Well, let me touch on the first part about being gospel-centered. It, it's interesting as we look at the life and the journey of Jesus, uh, it really does appear that um, he made a point of taking those who are placed on the outside, those who are on the margins, and bringing them into the center of the picture. I think of the woman who had the issue of hemorrhaging for 12 years, and she was an outcast uh, socially, culturally, religiously. Um, no one would associate with her because she was unclean. And she presses in through the crowd that Jesus is in, and she touches the hem of his garment, and he stops everything and says, who touched me? And his disciples very naturally say, Jesus, what do you mean? We can hardly breathe in this crowd. Everybody's touching you. But he took note, he said, but I know that power has gone out from me. And he turns to the woman, and he does what we would expect him to do. He heals her, but he does something else. He calls her daughter. And he does not call any other, any other person in the gospel daughter. Hmm. So he confers a physical healing, and he also restores her dignity. She was the outcast and the vulnerable, and Jesus took her from the margins, and he put her right in the center of the picture. But then a couple chapters later, we read that he was looking uh, at the publican who's, you know, uh, saying to God, thank you that I'm not like the rest of these. I'm not a sinner like these. And there's a tax gatherer who's beating his breast saying, oh, God, have mercy on me. And Jesus takes those who are in the center of the picture and he puts them to the outside. So the risk is, is that we would think that we in the West, because of our religious liberties, our many resources, and the genuine favor of God that we've experienced, would think that we have a favored status with God. Mm. But the truth is, there is a favored status with God, but it's not the well-resourced and the well-connected 
Jesus said something that we pass over to glibly. He said, oh, the first of you, you're going to be last. Mm. And the last of you are going to be first. So the question is, how will we understand the heart of Jesus for the vulnerable? And, and how will we interact with the most vulnerable in our generation and these refugees and do it responsibly? Now, to your point before, Phil, I don't, none of us are advocating for open borders. We live in a dangerous world. We really have to be mindful of our security. But with 65 million displaced people and 23 million refugees, the quota for the U.S. right now is 50,000 refugees. And so our belief is that America is not great. And, and I, I had the chance to speak with some at the White House a few weeks ago and just uh, remind some folks in the National Security Council, uh, just having the privilege of speaking this to them, and they were very receptive. Our president has rightly said, let's make America great. America's not great if she does not control her borders and have appropriate security, but she's also not great if she does not have compassion. Mm. And so I really believe that an appropriate response for a nation that is born of um, people from other nations, vulnerable, poor, huddled masses, if you will, is to wisely honor both security and compassion. And America is greatest when she can do both, be um, careful with security and openly compassionate. That's what we're advocating, and that's why we've offered to the administration and at various forms of government to work as carefully as we can to help improve both security and compassion. It's not beyond us to do both well. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that uh, you said something I want you to dig a deep, little bit deeper into. Um, well, you, you actually wrote a an article for Time uh, Magazine, and it was entitled Serious Children Are the World's Responsibility. Um, can you just share what you meant by that and, you know, a little bit of a summary of the article, but also just how, you know, there are so many children, orphan and vulnerable children, you know, which is, you know, a big part of what we're talking about on this podcast. And, and are there any special considerations, you know, when these refugees come to the U.S., you know, some of them are orphan and vulnerable, well, all of them are vulnerable, but some are actually orphaned children. And so are there special considerations we need to address, um, with these, with these children? I, I think there are, Phil, and, and certainly at World Relief, our ethos is coming out of the commands of Jesus. But there are many who are not um, Christian by declaration, or perhaps even faith-based by declaration, but they recognize that collectively um, there is something right and human, in our case, biblical, about taking a special care for the least of these. You know, Jesus was clear, whatever you do for the least of these, that you've done to me. And he also said, whatever you would have done for you, do that for others. So as I, if I were to imagine uh, my daughter, uh, one of my three, uh, my oldest is about to give birth to our first grandchild. If I project out a few years and imagine she's living in a land where she's been bombed out of her home, she has no visible means of support, her husband has been taken from her or killed, and she was desperate to find a safe place. Who would I hope that she would run into? Would I hope that she would run into people who had no regard for her estate, who took no interest in her plight and said, I sure hope somebody helps you over there. Or would I hope that she would run into a follower of Jesus who would say, I'm going to do to you 
as I would have it done to me or to my children or to my grandchildren, I'm going to help you find safety and security, whether it be in your homeland, in another land, or even in our land. At World Relief, we believe that all three are appropriate responses, but there are um, so many children, millions of children, who right now are traumatized, who don't have a safe place. You know, and, and sadly, Phil, just to give you a picture of this, even when we can get these children in safe places, what we'll often find is that it is a long, long journey to where they can trust anyone again, mm-hmm. to where we can break them out of the trauma that they're in. Sometimes we'll find that uh, when they are sleeping, um, if first of all, maybe a long time before they can sleep, and then finally when they do learn to sleep, they begin to sleep so soundly that they can't control their bladders and their every part of their system has been thrown off. And there's a great deal of compassion and care, not just to get them to a safe place, but then to help them enter mm. a safe space where they can begin to recover the life that they've lost. Right. Sounds a lot like the aftercare for the trafficking victims. Um, and some of these actually are, you know, trafficking victims and have been abused in so many different ways. But even those that aren't have so much trauma and those listening in that are foster parents and adoptive parents, you know about the trauma in the early, early years of some of the children that you're able, you know, to be able to now be parents to. Um, but it sounds a lot like that where you were really having to come in with that, that level of, of psychosocial care on these, on these children. Am I, am I correctly interpreting that? You really are, and it's, it's the children and it's the mothers. And so you can imagine a mother who comes in with mm-hmm. several children, and uh, she no longer has a spouse. She's in a new community. She's been resettled to the U.S. She doesn't speak the language. She doesn't know the customs. Um, and uh, she's trying to provide care for her children, but she doesn't even have the resources to care for herself mm-hmm. appropriately. If, if I can, I, I, I want to tell you one story that Absolutely. comes out of a visit I had with our Chicago office. Um, so it's one of the many times I've fallen in love with World Relief. I do it over and over again as I get to see the work we do. But I, there was a young refugee there from the country of Myanmar, and he was volunteering. And I asked him why he was. And uh, in his newly acquired English, he said, you have to understand that I was in a refugee camp since I was a boy. I was there for 17 years. And by the way, 17 years is the average stay of a refugee in a camp, not 17 weeks or 17 months, but 17 years. Mm. And he said, I met my wife there. We were married. We had a child and we never thought we'd leave the refugee camp. But against all odds, it seemed we were admitted to the U.S. through the refugee program. And someone in the camp came up to me and gave me a crumpled U.S. $20 bill. I put it in my pocket because I didn't know what to expect when we arrived in the U.S. My wife and I took several flights through several airports with our young child, and we did nothing but drink water because we had no idea how we would care for ourselves when we got to the U.S. He said, you have no idea what it meant to land at O'Hare and to walk out of the customs area and to see a name, a sign with my name on it. To go out to meet people from a local church, including someone from my country that could speak my language. They took me out to a parking lot where there was a van full of people ready to greet me. They drove us to the apartment that they had rented, full of the furniture that they had secured with food that they had brought in. And they sat down and they told us how welcomed we were. 
and that they would be happy to enlist us in the English as a Second Language class. They already had people out looking for jobs for me so I could support my family. And they told us they were part of this community, the church, that we would always be welcome to. He said, you have no idea what it meant to feel so vulnerable Mm. and to now feel so welcomed. He said, I'm here because the next people that come in from my country, I want to be at the airport with their name on a sign that I'm holding. I'm going to be there for them. Mm. Mm. That is that is a great story. And that I think that that's a great segue into the the kind of last thing I want to talk to you about substantively here um, about what we can do. Um, we being the audience, we being me, who's not working, you know, full time with world relief, but what can we practically do to address the crisis and really engage with the work that that you're doing and other people are doing to, to love the refugee as, as we're called to. Yeah. Let me give you three words, Phil. I'll try to impact each of them very briefly. Educate, um, would be one of them. Uh, and that, that one is really just getting connected to what's really going on in the refugee crisis. Let me suggest a book. It's a paperback. Uh, it's an easy read, but a really important read. It's called Seeking Refuge. And it was uh, put out by some of our staff at World Relief. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it through Moody Press. But Seeking Refuge, if you spend a little time with that, I was just with a congressman from uh, Oklahoma who said, I didn't know much about this. He said, I picked up this book and I couldn't put it down. I spent my Sunday afternoon reading it, marking it up and asking questions, seeking refuge. It will really help in the education. A second thing then is to engage. And some people have access to refugee populations and some people don't. Um, You know, we resettle refugees in many cities across the country. Uh, Other uh, really solid organizations are doing the same. I would encourage you to see if there's a refugee resettlement office in your city. If you go to our website, worldrelief.org, you'll see what cities we're in. And go and engage with a refugee family. You can volunteer to help teach in the English as a Second Language class. You can serve very practical ways in helping provide uh, basic necessities for a family that's just coming in. You can get engaged in many ways, but you'll begin to hear the stories like I just told you at a very personal level, and you'll see the beauty, the dignity, and the humanity of these people, even in the midst of their trauma. So educate, engage, and then I think the third thing is embrace. Um, The reality is is it's hard for us to think about stepping over a cultural chasm. Uh, trying to communicate with people who do not yet know our language and we don't know theirs, uh, who may eat different foods and have different customs, but at the heart, they're moms and dads like we are, they're children like our children, and they're longing simply to have a place where they can raise their family with a measure of safety and security and nothing touches them like someone reaching out ahead and saying, you matter, you're welcome here, In the name of the Jesus that I serve, I want to serve you. So educate, engage, embrace. Worldrelief.org will help you see some very practical things that are available and also give you some some tools that you can use to uh, help you in the education process and pass along to some of your friends. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think one of those things, too, is the, the transformation tree training materials you have for the church. Can you just briefly uh, share that and, and how people can get engaged with those? 
I can't. The, the, the beauty and the uniqueness of the work that we do at World Relief is we have resettled about 285,000 refugees over the 40 year, nearly 40 years of the U.S. program, and they have all been resettled through the churches. Everything we do, we do through the churches because the churches provide a sustainable network. The U.S. government is involved. They provide initial seed capital for the initial refugee resettlement. But after that, the refugees are on their own financially, socially, culturally. The churches are an amazing way to bring them into community. And we've seen some incredible things happen. Stories of faith being born, dignity uh, uh, recaptured, uh, ingenuity and entrepreneurship. And all of that is really, in many cases, built off the notion that we work with fundamental belief systems in order to develop new behaviors. And this is really something we piloted out of our work in sub-Saharan Africa, but has application to us as Americans and to the refugee population. The best behaviors come out, not out of behavior modification, but out of a change in our belief systems. And the transformation tree curriculum, just very briefly, is recognizing that there's a root system that feeds everything we do, and that's our belief system. That in form builds the trunk, which creates branches, which bear the fruit. And until we can get a healthy root system, we cannot find the changes in the fruit of our lives the way that is needed. So in everything we're doing in every population, uh, with respect for their culture and their dignity, we're also offering to them the belief systems that we believe will be flourishing in their life. And it will be no surprise that uh, as a Christian organization, they're rooted in the truths of scripture. Absolutely. Well, I know that uh, I talk to a lot of people about this stuff and, and I say, really, the, the first thing you got to do is, is, is care. But the only way you'll care is if you are educated on the stuff. And, and I think that that is, that is critical here, what you're talking about. You need to educate yourself on it. And then when you care, then you'll want to do something about it. And I think that that's when it really comes, the caring comes with empathy for others and getting to know people um, who are going through this, to getting to know people who are affected by it. And I think that there's plenty of people in our neighborhoods, wherever we are listening to this, that we can, if we, if we seek it out, we can find it, I think. I know here in Sacramento area where I live, my, my good friend Kurt Lewis is working with you at World Relief. And, mm-hmm. and uh, if you're here in the Sacramento region, just reach out to him and he'll have plenty for you to help out with. I know that for sure. So, um, and I know that that's the same uh, in all the places where you're working. Um, as we finish up, uh, we, we're going to ask you the last two questions that I ask everyone. Um, and the first is, what have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on the issues uh, we've discussed today? You know, it, uh, it's a constellation of things that is always informing me and changing me. Uh, I, this is going to sound cliche, Phil, but I'll take that risk. Um, the more time I spend in the scriptures understanding God's heart for vulnerable people, it just keeps breaking my heart and reminding me how easily I live in a very self-focused way. It's, it's, uh, it's my bent. Uh, I, I want my ease, my pleasure, my comfort, but the scripture just continually calls me out of that. And so honestly, um, that is what um, changes the root system of my beliefs and changes the food out of my life. Seeking Refuge uh, is a book that I have used regularly just to remind myself of why this matters. Um, I think Tim Keller's book on generous justice Mm -hmm. is another one that just reminds us of what it is to be people of justice because God is a God of justice. 
And, um, you know, Rich Stearns, The Hole in Our Gospel would be another one. So those would just be a few of the things right. that um, I think would be helpful to people. Yeah, those are some fantastic books. I've, uh, I've read all of them except for Seeking, Je- uh, Seeking Refuge, which I have on my short list, and I'm going to hit that really soon. Um, the last question uh, is what one person has most impacted your thinking about the refugee crisis and how we can effectively respond to it? Um, I think that person would have to be Matt Sorens. Uh, Matt is on our staff. Um, and uh, he was one of the authors of Seeking Refuge. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've known Matt for a number of years. Um, uh, when I was pastoring, I would invite him up to our church to help us as leaders grapple with the issue of the vulnerable people. And Matt has an amazing way to pierce into your heart with truth, uh, not in a way that makes you feel guilty, but makes you feel ennobled and inspired. Um, I should probably make sure he doesn't hear this. He'll get a big head. But uh, <laughs> Matt, um, Matt has been, you know, along with uh, Jenny Yang on our staff, Stephen Bowman, who our former president who wrote uh, the Seeking Refugee book along with Matt, and Isam Samir, those would be some of the folks that keep me engaged. And what I would, uh, I would also add, you mentioned Kurt Lewis. If, uh, if your listeners go and look at the cities where we're located, if you go in and talk to any of our office directors, and if you ever get the chance to visit with Emily Gray, who heads up our U.S. practice, they will inform you, they will inspire you, and you'll walk away with your heart burning for these things. Mm-hmm. I agree with that fully. I know every time I talk with Kurt, uh, the passion is just exuding out of the man. And it's not just passion, but it's informed passion. And uh, so, you know, Scott, it, it, the same goes true for you. And, and uh, I thank you for your time. I thank you for all the work that you're doing um, for the refugees and the vulnerable uh, around the world. Phil, my privilege. Thanks for giving us a chance to talk about this. And, and I'm deeply grateful to you and those in your audience that are caring for orphans uh, around the world in so many different ways. Uh, We have a common call, and I'm glad to be in it with you. Well, thanks for that, Scott. Uh, Just really a good overview of what's going on around the world to be able to help us to know how we can engage in this crisis in real ways and help us to understand really what's going on um, in the midst of, you know, really uncertain times. So Karen, what what, do you think about Scott? What really stood out to you? As many times as I hear the the numbers, the statistics, the the staggering amount of people that have been displaced, it's still incredibly overwhelming for me. I really liked how he mapped it out for us as, or for me rather, as, you know, a white privileged American woman, uh, but understanding just what the number of refugees would look like in the United States of him really mapping that out with Chicago and then 11 of the Midwest Midwestern states. That was overwhelming for me. It was eye opening. Um, yeah, it was, it was powerful on, on many, many levels. I think that, um, in general, some of the things that he was talking about was helpful for me to even understand, like, how do we come alongside of this situation? And I appreciated his response, um, of security plus compassion. I think that's, Mm -hmm. there's a wisdom in that. And I think that the way that he was able to humbly (laughs) speak as an expert, but also understand that security is important to you and there has to be wisdom um, in the security piece, but that ultimately 
compassion as Christians, that's, that's what we are called to as well. Yeah, definitely. And you talk about the humbly piece. I just thought it was, it was funny even when I heard it again uh, about him talking about just going to the white house and he just happened to have a little meeting with, with a couple people there. And, but that's the, you know, that's the, the, the places that he's being able to impact with this, with this conversation. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, I just, you know, I get encouraged as he talks about really the simplicity sometimes of what it means to engage in these, in this, in the crisis, really, as he said, educate, engage and embrace, you know, I think the education, that's what we're hoping to do on this, you know, to be able to just share even this podcast with people to help them to understand these issues uh, better will help us to hopefully have more of that compassion that you did talk about. Um, and I, I fully agree. I thought that was one of the things that really stood out to me, uh, was the security and the compassion. Like, yeah, we need to be safe. We need to be secure. That makes sense, right? You're not just going to let a, a crazy person into your house when you have kids. You know, that's just not wise. But at the same time, you want to err on the side of compassion. How can you help that person? You know, what can we do to be able to in- encourage them? And the other thing that really stuck out to me from from the time that I was able to spend with Scott was just the idea of displacement. I kind of asked the question in such a way that it was kind of an understatement, right? That these people aren't just like taking a little trip down the road to some place. No, they're being torn from their homes. This is something that is, it's tragic and that, you know, they're there for years and years on average. And yeah, when I heard that about 17 years, I was blown away. Yeah, me too. It was, it was crazy. When he said that, I, I almost thought he wasn't stating it right. And then he clarified it and said, not 18 days, you know, whatever, you know, it's just like, yeah, it's just, we don't think about it in those terms. And to think about what do you do in 18, 17, 18 years? That's a lot of time. That's the average, right? So yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just, I just think that there is so much to this and I really, really appreciated like how, how Scott just brought it down to a level that we can understand. And like you said, even, even using the terms here in the U S. So, um, any, anything else, any last thoughts? I think for me, anytime that I hear um, wisdom related to trauma and helping families and kids understand um, the impact of trauma and what that looks like of, of not just kind of some of the things that we might expect from a refugee crisis, but even the pieces of um when families, adults or teenagers, when they, they lose their education, when the ability to have a safe and um, you know, healthy access to education is lost, those long-standing ramifications, uh, that was something that really stuck out for me too. And um, going back to that 17 years of thinking, wow, like that's what most of us here in America, that's how long, maybe 17, 18 years we get with our children mm-hmm. um, if we have children by birth. And um, I'm just thinking, wow, like I was literally in high school 17 years mm-hmm. ago and how what a long time that is, but understanding too that it is important to recognize the impact of trauma and it's important to try and um, bring that psychosocial care in as many ways as possible to children and teenagers and families. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about with this interview. And I, I do, like I said earlier in the show, I, w- I encourage you out there to engage with us on this and share with us what you're feeling and what you're thinking about after you heard that. Um, also, the other thing that we haven't asked for a while, but we definitely want you to continue doing it is rating and reviewing the show um, on iTunes and wherever you're listening. That would, that helps us out a ton. It helps it get this, get helps it 
us get this out to more and more people. Um, also just be sharing it uh, via email, social media, just in person when you're talking to people. Share about these things because, again, we want to educate people on all these issues that we're talking about on this show. So now that brings us to the uh, Phil and Karen recommend segment of the show. And, and today I am going to be recommending uh, a movie, a documentary that, that I was able to watch a few months ago on Netflix. And, it, and it, it directly relates to what we're talking about in this refugee crisis. It's called The White Helmets. And it's about the, the rescue teams in Syria in the midst of the conflict there. They are just peacekeepers there that are really trying to um, save lives in the, in the midst of conflict that's just really, really hard. The movie does a great job. It won the Oscar for uh, Best uh, Short Form Documentary, and I think it very much deserved it. So you definitely will not go wrong checking that out. It's about a 40-minute movie, and it was done uh, just in fantastic style. So with that, uh, we're going to wrap up this show. Another great one. And I just thank you out there for listening, for downloading, for engaging this with us. And I just hope and pray that you will use whatever you heard today to continue helping you to love orphaned and vulnerable children more and more every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.